Hello, everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast based on writers sitting around drinking tasty beverages and talking about writing, publishing, and the whole creative process. There will be rants and raves and opinions that may not agree but are lovingly delivered. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. This is episode 146, Black Women Writing Horror, an interview with Samiko Salson. Welcome, Samiko. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. Well, I'm so delighted. I just met you very briefly at your booth at Clockwork Alchemy. I grabbed a copy of your book, 100 Black Women in Horror, because I realized I have always loved the dark noir fantasy and the dark horrors, but I could only name a couple. If you said it's like I knew Octavia Butler writes it and I knew Leslie Banks, L.A. Banks, you gave me all sorts of people to go look at. It's fabulous. Yeah. So that book started out as a series on my blog and that was an outcrop of um well actually when i first went around with my very first book um solitude way back in 2011 i was going with my mother to marcus books in san francisco and we went in there and the lady that uh ran the place was like horror by black people like, what's that? Like, is this like sci-fi like Octavia Butler? And my mom was right there. So my mom was like, yeah, yeah, it's it's like Octavia Butler because, you know, she's my mom. Um, but I was running into this in a bunch of different places. Like people just associated horror with being a thing that white men write and no one else. Um, so um, there was something called Women in Horror Month. Um, it's been around for a while. Um, and at that time, you could sign up to be an ambassador for Women in Horror Month, and that involved doing something um, to celebrate it. And I had a blog that I'd been doing for about two years. Actually, no, that might have been like the first year that I was doing my blog, actually. And I said, well, since Women in Horror Month at that time was in February, which is Black History Month, it has since been moved to uh, March, which is Women you know, Women's History Month. But at that time, it was in February. And I was like, why not put those two things together? Black women who write horror. So I started to look into that. And I put together a list of 20 names. And then before I knew it, there was another list of 20 names. Mm -hmm. And then there was another list of 20 names. So these all actually started out as blog series. And they just expanded from there. I was interested in particular of reading through some of the list and saying, one is sometimes when it's just initials, I don't know male versus female or color or anything else. For instance, L.A. Banks, Leslie Banks. I'd read all the books. I knew there weren't any more. I didn't know until I read your book that um, they had died. And like, oh, oh gosh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> and then it was like, well, that'd be why there's no more books coming out. But it, it really is. I think these these books like yours that put it together make it wonderful for people that say, I want to read more. And it was interesting as well how many of them that you had found and identified and brought up had contributed to some of the anthologies out there. For instance, I didn't know about Sycorex's daughters in the books at all. And you talk about it and it's fascinating. Yeah, I actually am friends with two of the women that are involved in that. And actually, uh, Kenitra Brooks, Dr. Kenitra Brooks, approached me and said, hey, I'm putting together this book. I noticed you put together uh, this list of Black, you know, women in horror. And, you know, she started talking to me about it. And then she asked me, 
you know, basically she was looking for people that maybe could help her put put the book together. So I did actually introduce her to my friend, Linda Addison. So I would say at that time, I didn't know Kenitra, but I did know Linda. And they Linda ended up actually being one of the um, two people that she did the books with. The other one is um, Dr. Uh, Susanna Morris, another PhD. Uh, Linda was the first Black person to win the Bram Stoker Award, which is the highest award that they have out there for horror writers. It is. We of it before yeah <laughs> yeah and you know she's a horror poet so i i met her through my friend rain graves who is a horror poet who rain was was living out here at the time um she lives in texas now um so when i went to the very first stoker con that i went to i told rain i'm like i I don't know anybody and all this stuff like that and rain was like oh these are my friends and so she gave me a list of her friends and uh linda was one of them and i went there and linda was really great she is actually somebody who is very 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 um into elevating other black writers in the genre and people, diverse people in the genre in general. It's really great that they put that book together. And the book has been very, very well uh, critically uh, received and also well received in general. I liked it because it does talk about, we were trying to get more voices and, and a variety of voices. And I've seen a lot of women in urban fantasy and kind of edging towards urban horror, but this really makes me appreciate about the African diaspora from Haiti, from Trinidad, and from Jamaica, and that Sycorec gives the voice to people recovering from the effects of colonization, colonization rather, and that says that this experience is not the same because they're female. I mean, if you look back, all of John Saul, we tended to be bad things happen to little kids and women. And it's interesting to see a new direction and a new voice and change out of that to make, I think horror could be for everybody in that way. Yeah. And you bring up a really interesting point because, um, you know, what you're talking about is something that's called male gaze, or um, in this case, specifically white male gaze. So what happens is the gaze that is the point of view Um, of the observer or the audience dictates how the subject is viewed. And because people have assumed that horror is a male gaze thing, that makes them view things that are from a different vantage point as automatically not being horror, which is why so many people don't think of um, Toni Morrison's Beloved as a horror story when it is actually very much a ghost story in the a Southern Gothic tradition, but in a Southern Gothic story from the Gothic era, it would be written by a white man. And in that case, the the ghost or, you know, what happens in, in horror that's written by, you know, white men is that the other um, most often becomes what we're afraid of. Um, so we all know like uh, Pet Cemetery, Stephen King, um, you know, and thinner Stephen King, you know, it's, we got cursed by the Native Americans, we got cursed by the Roma, and this is all stuff where, you know, this goes back to the 
beginning of the gothic horror genre so um for those of who do, those of you who do not know what southern gothic is in particular a uh, gothic horror in britain very often dealt with the idea of fear of the other um so like uh ww um abrams the monkey's paw which we're all really familiar with is a story where a british guy is um in calcutta and he gets a monkey's paw and of, and of course it's cursed and a lot of these horror stories were you know british people obsessively thinking about how they had um you know through colonialism which you mentioned earlier screwed over a bunch of people that obviously were out to get them and were going to do things to curse them and stuff like that um, when you come to gothic horror that took place in, you know, America at the same period of time, um, because, of course, the wild, wild west and all that was going on over here while uh, those things were going on there, um, you have different types of people that are being othered. And generally speaking, it's Native Americans and uh, African Americans because of slavery that come up most often so it's not just us but we're the ones that come up most often in beloved tony morrison took these tropes and turned them on their end by creating a story where an african american woman who had been freed from slavery you know you know if you've read the book murdered her daughter to keep her from becoming enslaved just before the end of slavery. And this is why the house is haunted. And like in um, gothic horror as a, you know, genre, the house is always a character. So that's why you see, yeah, that this is very, very, very much in that genre. The only difference being, instead of it being a, a white man that's afraid of the ghost of the dead Black child that was that died during slavery, you have an African person, African diaspora person who is afraid of the ghost. So when you change the point of view, that changes a lot of things like um, Eden Royce, um, another uh, writer who writes in the Southern Gothic uh, tradition, said, if you read stories about magic and, you know, about voodoo and things like that, that are written by, um, you know, see something like the serpent and the rainbow um, that are written by white people. There's just bad magic. There isn't really good magic. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? I I was going to say, honestly, if you view all zombies were originally a, from a voodoo and Haitian creation, that's gone crazy. So it's like people don't even really acknowledge the origin of the zombie stories and ideas. All they know is like, yes, Night of the Living Dead, we're going to shamble around and eat fried chicken with, you know, black and white blood. Or, or they've become um, that uh, TV show with the, with the white girl who... Um, oh, iZombie, right. Yeah, iZombie. And it's like totally, totally ignoring the tradition what you know completely so well it it takes away the cultural observation and the spiritualistic practices that led to the idea of zombiedom and it feels like very much that when you just take an idea and run with it sooner or later and you don't look backward at all you get i mean good lord you could end up with sparkly vampires even and <laughs> no, yeah i'm, I'm gonna say something and this may be controversial but although i haven't read the twilight um, books. I did see. I saw all of those movies, and um, 
I'm a fan of paranormal romance, so I'm not going to hate on the sparkly vampires, but that is funny that you say that. <laughs> I, I read the book as well, and or at least the first one. And first of all, I think everyone should read it because you'll think to yourself, God, if this is a bestseller, I can write a book. <laughs> and, and the second piece out of it was the very, she looks in the, it's a pretty girl that doesn't realize she's pretty, but they don't really describe her at all. It's all her being is focused outward on Edward, Edwin Cullen's perfect, perfect face. And in a certain way, it gets kind of dull with the way that she is unimportant, only he matters. And that got just old quick for me. Yeah, it's a trope. Yeah, it doesn't mean you can't love it, though. It doesn't mean you can't love the book, though. Oh, I, I am a big supernatural horror vampires biting, you know, from Chelsea Quinn Yarbrough. I've loved vampires, you know, years ago. Oh, but. Chelsea Quinn. I wonder if she can talk to us. I love Chelsea Quinn Yarbrough. Well, go talk her into it by all means. You're talking about vampires. You know, um, I was fortunate enough to um, have known Anne Rice, who passed away yes, um, wow. last December. Uh, she used to be very, very active on social media. And so before she went back to writing her vampire books, there was this whole period of time where I, her Facebook page had a whole bunch of her fans um, that were popping off about Renesme, which is the child of Edwin of Ed, oh, sorry, Edward Cullen. It's I think Edward, it's Edward, right? And uh, and Bella Swan, right? And they're like, uh, vampires can't have children because their blood doesn't run after they die. And I'm like, okay, that's literally just Anne's vampires that don't that can't get an erection. <laughs> Pardon me. Uh, hopefully, I can say the word erection on this. Yes, I'm like, yes you just can. Because, I'm like, just because Anne's vampires cannot get an erection, that does not actually apply to all vampires because mm -hmm. the damn fear is actually something that was in the original Legends of the Vampires yeah. way back when. Okay, so this is not a new thing. Um, this is something that they um, actually, the original back in both in the Greek legends about the vampires, but also in the Middle Ages. In the Middle Ages, they were um, really convinced that these vampires were coming from uh, the grave to rob your sperm. That was a whole thing. So human vampire hybrids have been in the lore for, you know, like a really long time. Oh, absolutely. Wasn't it the succubus who takes the seed from poor unsuspecting men and right. then she turns into an incubus and he inseminates other girls. So there's, I liked the Queen of the Damned, at least the book version, because universal vampire theory was actually kind of cool that she decided to embrace everything from the Polynesian and some of the Pacific Islander vampires that ripped apart and you know, traveled around while leaving their legs in place and other things. And it was neat. I really loved that book. And that's when I actually became an Anne Rice fan was when that book came out. So that book came out when I was, um, I think, 21. Yeah. Came out when I was a young person. And I was reading uh, Stephen King was my favorite writer then. I love horror, obviously. And I was in the middle of reading uh -huh. It. And and then I picked up Queen of the Damned because someone else that I um, that one of my roommates had it 
And I started reading it and I actually put it down and started reading it and then became an Anne Rice fan. So that happened. Did that stop you being a Stephen King fan? I still, well, yeah, I still actually was a Stephen King fan, but I went out and read tons and tons and tons of Anne Rice after that. I feel like we owe her the debt of combining sensuality and horror together. Yeah. And also she is uh, definitely someone that all uh, women in horror owe a um, really a big debt to um, because even though she had to deal with a lot of the whole poo-pooing that, I mean, really what happens with women in horror is people decide it must be some other genre yes. because a woman wrote it. So of course it must be paranormal romance. Um, and the thing is that horror romance, also known as horror romance, exists and horror romance is a genre Paranormal romance and horror romance can exist at the same time, but just because there's some type of sensuality in there, that does not mean that it is not horror. Yeah, I'm still kind of stuck on the on on a zombie going along, going mm. sperm, sperm. Flames. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. well, you have to love it, but there's there was an argument that I heard somebody talking about of. Is horror actually a genre or is it a type of fantasy and versus thriller? For instance, Event Horizon, I watched and I'm like, I think it's a science fiction movie. At the end of it is, oh, it was horror set in space. Yeah, um, um, and Doug Winter said the wisest thing in the long ago. He said, horror isn't a genre, it's an emotion. And that's my own yeah. So, I think that means that thrillers are an emotion too, then, right? So, I'm going to say something. Okay. This shouldn't be very controversial. Okay. So, there are many, 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 many types of genre crossovers, such as dark fantasy, right? Genre crossovers are what you have when two genres mix together. And you could try to say that horror wasn't a genre, but I would happen to disagree with you. I think that horror most definitely is a genre um, which has its own subgenres. In fact, many of them. So fantasy is, I think, a different thing. And I think that horror is something that is rooted in, um, it's, it's something that has a really, really, really long history. And the only, main thing that fantasy and horror have in common is that they both originated um, with folklore. So that may be why people are equating the two. That's a good point. I like it. Yeah. So many people consider Frankenstein to be both the first science fiction novel and the first, well, one of the first uh, modern horror novels because it deals with the, you know, the hubris of man, which is very, very, very big in the modern genre. But also yeah. all across horror, too, from what I've read. Yeah. <laughs> now, besides just doing that, you actually write and illustrate comics, too. So you're one of those people that seems to be just multi-talented do do in graphic novels. Tell us a little bit about how do you how do you approach the story differently when you're drawing it versus you're just writing the words down? Okay, so I have bipolar disorder and post-traumatic stress disorder, and I always have to do things in a way that's managing my mental health. And the first graphic novel that I did was something that I did during the period that my father was dying. 
because I became very depressed and I had writer's block. So it's called Agrippa. And what I did is I took a short story I had written and I adapted it for the graphic novel. And I sat around drawing pictures. So I was sitting there drawing pictures, actually a couple of pictures of my father in the comic um, or the graphic novel because I was drawing him while he was sitting in the bed. And, um, you know, drawing is something that I've been doing for a really, really long time. And when I was like... um, five years old, my dad asked me what I wanted to do when I grew up. And I said, well, I want to be a a writer, an artist or a veterinarian. And then, you know, my dad being who he is, went into a long conversation about how much school you had to go to to become a veterinarian. And uh, probably as a result of that, I ended up actually becoming a um, computer repair and networking uh, technician, which was more similar to my dad's job than a veterinarian. I, um, You've always been in science fiction and horror. That's what you just told me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my, my, my parents were fans of the genre. Both of them were big horror fans, and they were both science fiction fans, too. So I was raised with that. But um, I drew a lot when I was a kid. Um, I drew like I'm when I was like in kindergarten my so you know I'm half black and half Jewish and um, so we would go over to my grandma's for Hanukkah um, my dad's mom and um, I have a cousin named Gina and she's like one year older than me and um, I was I made like a coloring book like I actually got a piece of paper and folded it in half and drew four cartoons on it and gave it to my cousin for for Hanukkah when I was wow. you know five. So that was the first that was the first comic I actually did. It was a coloring book for my cousin. I've been drawing for a long time. I've been writing for a long time. I started I started writing poetry and selling it actually when I was like in third grade. And one way of looking at this is, wow, you're really creative. You do all this stuff. Another way of looking at it is that this is, in a way, it's all art therapy that I'm doing to manage my condition. There's a big, really strong connection between mental illness and also bipolar disorder in particular, and this type of creativity. So I'm not alone. People in the literary arts have bipolar disorder at a rate about twice the general population. So the graphic art and the graphic novels are things that I picked up on doing because when I'm grieving and when I'm depressed, it becomes more difficult for me to actually write. So um, that's a way for me to deal with that. You, you, you do that. Do you do that consciously thinking, oh, I'm getting depressed. I need to draw. I think that the conscious process of someone who goes into manic states is something very interesting. So if I start getting manic and I notice that I'm getting manic, then I might make a conscious choice that is something like, okay, to redirect my energy into something that's positive, because I know that if I start being able to really make good choices, it's going to be important for me to make some choices in advance right. um, to make it so that I make better choices. That's smart. Yeah. But when I become depressed, it is not as conscious mm-hmm. in the, you know, in it. Well, it, it was, I made a conscious choice to draw, to try drawing to see if that would alleviate my writer's block. And it did. 
it did actually become something. So now I'm actually enjoying a lot of success um, as an artist, which makes me happy. But it is um, very, very specific because it it is actually um, really connected to, yeah, I'm enjoying more success as an artist. And I'm going to say I started, you know, the kink community is really big in San Francisco. So I started getting like wooden paddles um, and painting cartoons on them and selling them. Yeah. And I, because I work at the Erotic Storytelling Hour, which, you know, I work for the um, San Francisco Leather and LGBTQ District. So I started painting on these paddles and drawing these paddles and I'm just like selling all these paddles. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's really cool. This also gives me insight into your upcoming book release. You've just written Happiness and Other Diseases, and on the cover, it's both BDSM and Tentacles, so you had my attention. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Tell tell us a little bit about your upcoming book. Okay, so Happiness and Other Diseases is a story, it's, it's, it's the first book in the Metamorphoses of Flynn Cahey. So Flynn Cahey, so he's got bipolar and he has been having these bad dreams for about a year. And in his dreams, um, he, a lot of what's coming up is that he's he's a very repressed kinky person. So he's kinky, but he doesn't talk about that. And he's very ashamed of it. And, you know, as a result, this supernatural being has latched onto him and is sort of devouring all of his emotions with his guilt and his shame and his and his masochism. And this creature is called Mercy. Mercy is actually um, really a Greek mythological type creature from the land of dreams. They are the, so, you know, if you know the story, Somnus has a thousand sons and his thousand Mm -hmm. sons are all different aspects of dreams, even though um, most people only know Morpheus and uh, Phantasos and Phobator by name. There are actually a thousand of them. And in this story, the one that is the god of erotic mm-hmm. nightmares, things that make people scaroused, you know, is, is called Brash. His name is Brash. And Brash has uh, 12 children and Mercy is one of them. Well, Mercy is kind of being naughty in terms of that. She's kind of like got this sort of Freddy Krueger-esque desire to break into, you know, the mortal realm. So she's trying to get out of dreams and into the mortal realm. But doing that (laughs) requires a whole bunch of like blood sacrifices. So, you know, yeah. So Mercy's been a bad girl. Yeah, because she's doing, you know, the most that's attracted, you know, the attention of the older gods. I don't want to call them elder gods anymore because I got in trouble with an editor who said that that sounded like Lovecraft because, like, I guess he owns that or something now. Yeah, I mean, that's that's um, 
that, that's something we've done by making him something uh, a sort of meme magnified um because he wrote about elder gods therefore all elder gods belong to him um i hate that i know it's like a whole thing yeah. so anyway take back the elder gods you guys exactly. yeah you can do exactly. it exactly <laughs> so um somnus's mother um nix the uh goddess that represents night is like okay y'all are doing too much and what's going to happen is you're going to attract Zeus. And I really don't feel like messing with him. Um, so no, Somnus, you need to deal with your granddaughter and all this message he's making. And so, you know, what she does is she basically puts a curse on all of Brash's children and Brass saying, you know, if y'all don't quit it, y'all are going to die and you're going to get reincarnated as mortals because that's what you deserve because you're making problems for me but the way this curse works is that if they should happen to kill this one particular mortal that's what activates the curse and unfortunately for flynn he is that particular mortal (laughs) yeah yeah so bad news for flynn bad news um that that's what happens i'm just dying to curiosity about the title though happiness and other diseases yeah that's that's some provocative there thank you wow so um, flynn is bipolar Mm -hmm. and basically has been made to feel for pretty much his entire adult life that if he feels happy, he's probably just having some kind of a manic episode. Ooh. Can't really be happy. He's just actually having some kind of a breakdown. <laughs> and uh, that's where the title really comes from. But also happiness happens to be Charlotte's actual name in the spirit world. Mm-hmm. So, um, oh, you don't even know who Charlotte is. Nope. Okay. Nope. So... <laughs> So Flynn gets put in the psych ward pretty early on um, because he tries to tell the psychiatrist that these things are in his sleep and that they're, you know, he's waking up with wounds on his body. And the psychiatrist is like, oh, you're self-harming. And he's like, I did not say that. I was literally just sleeping and I woke up and I had these wounds. But you know how psychiatrists are, you know. So um, and then he says, this this creature is going to kill me. And then the therapist, uh, the psychiatrist decides that means that he's suicidal mm-hmm. and something. And, and then he gets locked up. Mm-hmm. While he's locked up, Somnus has, you know, decided that he needs a champion to rescue him. But, you know, Nix will only allow him to have a, ch- a champion that's from Brash's line. And only one of them is part human. So Charlotte, who's like a demigod or whatever, um, she's this like goth chick and she's like in the hospital with Flynn. And, you know, she's, she's, she doesn't know that Somnus had, uh, you know, Eros put like a love spell on her, to make her more motivated to rescue Flynn. She's got this love spell on her. So she's going to go in there and she's going to rescue him. Um, and, you know, so then hijinks ensue. Ooh, that sounds so good. I, 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 am, I am aching to read this. Yeah. <laughs> well, the party is coming out on uh, April 16th. And when a link is available, we will be putting it on our website, which is www.writersdrinkingcoffee.com. 
Florence Miko, thank you so much for visiting with us today. This has been fantastic. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. Oh, it's an absolute delight. And everybody, you got to read, if you want to start somewhere, there are 100 Black Women in Horror is a wonderful reference novel to say, oh, I should go read that immediately. So I recommend both. Okay, thank you. You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web support magic is brought to you by Deirdre Schween, and our sound engineer and backup web spider is David Welsh. Our intro music is Pretty Made Milking a Cow, and our exit music is Breakfast with a Morning Person, both by Michael Langbert. Our podcast sponsor is Jackal Designs, who does great t-shirts available on the website. And hey, thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.